Thank you, that amazing reading. Um, it's a good introduction to what we're going to talk about this morning. There are many things in life that seem paradoxical. There are certainly statements that are paradoxical, like less is more, and I like this one. If I know one thing, it's that I know nothing. But one of my favorites is this. Deep down, you're really shallow. <laughs> but other examples are more serious and more complex, such as having joy in the midst of sorrow or hope in the midst of pain. And I think that Palm Sunday is a similar paradox in many respects. We start out singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, and we end up by shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Our readings begin with joy, rejoicing, and they leave us in darkness and despair. This morning, I want to reflect on the two psalms that we've read today, Psalm 118 and Psalm 31. There's a real tension between these two psalm readings. It's the tension that we often feel in life, the tension between rejoicing and lamenting. But as we'll see, I think that Palm Sunday helps us to make sense of this tension and teaches us how to live in this very tension. As we were waving our palm branches, we read from Psalm 118. This is part of a small group of psalms that were sung as worshipers ascended up the steps of the temple in Jerusalem. You can still walk these steps on the southern side of the Temple Mount today, although the gates are sealed up. But it's exciting to walk up these steps and to sing these songs and think about the worshipers who are walking up and that we get to join with them in some respects. So today, our reading from Psalm 118 starts out by focusing on God's goodness and love, proclaiming his mercies. The psalmist is overflowing with praise for the Lord and urges faithful Israelites to join in. God's loving mercy never fails. It endures forever. The emphasis is here on God's steady love, which is how one songwriter puts it. I love that image. God's love is steady. It never fails. It never ceases. Steady love and never-failing mercy are certainly worth praising. In fact, the, op the psalmist opens and closes the psalm with this wonderful affirmation. It's not me. Maybe God is calling. Um, in the part of the psalm that we didn't read, the psalm indicates that the writer has been delivered from a great attack possibly a military one, which is, and the, the psalmist was on the brink of falling back. In fact, at one point, the psalmist declares that he's on the brink of death, but his life has been spared. This suggests that the main speaker in the psalm could have been one of Israel's kings or one of its leaders. We don't know much about the original context of this psalm, but it alludes back to Moses' song in Exodus 15 in several places. And this is the song that Moses sang when God delivered the people from Pharaoh's army through the Red Sea. This also supports the idea that maybe the speaker was a king. So the psalmist, whoever he, and probably not she, was, saw his own deliverance in light of God's previous saving acts. Like God's people before him who had seen God's miraculous protection and provision in the face of severe opposition, the writer of this psalm experienced God's provision and protection as well. Indeed, the psalmist cries out that God is his song, 
his strength, his salvation. This is in uh, verse 14 of Psalm 118. I love this imagery. God is the song, the one who inspires all worship. God is strength, the one who enables us to do far more than we ever could have imagined and what is not humanly possible. And God as salvation is at the core of it all. Only God delivers us from attack and oppression. Only God saves us from ourselves and our sin and resistance to his will. There is no other source of salvation. This realization leads to the extended focus on worship, which is the the focus of the passage that we read earlier. Worship for the Lord's righteousness, his salvation. Worship for answered prayer, for his blessing. Having been delivered from terrifying circumstances, the psalmist practically explodes in praise. And we know this, don't we? This is what we do when the Lord delivers us from a difficult situation or a difficult diagnosis, or a difficult conflict. Doesn't praise flow naturally then? Another possible context for this psalm helps us to understand the community focus. It's likely that this psalm was sung at certain festivals in Israel's liturgical year, just like us with our liturgical year. Um, And one of those would have been the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a time when people praised God for his sustained faithfulness as they were wandering in the wilderness, just after they had seen his miraculous delivery under Pharaoh. So once again, the focus here is on remembering what God has done. Now, the uh, psalm appears to be kind of an enacted liturgy, just like what we did. We were out in the park waving palm leaves, and we came in. So we were enacting our liturgy. And the psalm seems to be like this as well. Because we have the king or the leader who's bringing his followers up the very steps of the temple where they are proclaiming God's goodness and recounting his faithfulness. And then if you look in verse 19, there's a command to open the gates. Maybe this was actually physically directed to the priest to open the gates to let the worshipers come in. Or perhaps it's just enacted, just like we did. We could have stood at the door and knocked on the door, open the gates and let us in to the assembly. And in either case, these uh, worshipers are proclaiming the words of praise for God's mercy and faithfulness as they ascend into the temple to offer the sacrifices that would restore them and, uh, uh, to the Lord and would give them the ability to give thanks for the, and express their gratitude for all that he had done. Now, as we try to imagine this procession, I have a good imagination, but Um, they may have actually walked by a stone that had been rejected in the construction of the temple. This is the imagery that's found in verse 22, and it's a very important imagery. Um, So here's a little bit of a digression about building in the ancient world. Um, At that point in time, buildings were not built with mortar. Now, um, I'd ask you to think maybe for a minute about your favorite brick house, perhaps your own house. And you know what happens when the mortar, the stuff that's in between the bricks starts to disintegrate? You have to call in somebody who's a specialist in tuck pointing. I like to use that expression. It kind of rolls off my tongue. But growing up in California, I had no idea what tuck pointing was about because buildings in California are not built with brick because every once in a while we have an earthquake, not good with brick. But doing a little bit of research on this, I've come to realize what tuck pointing is all about, and it's important in the Midwest. 
But the idea of having mortar between stones is relatively recent in the history of the world. Therefore, you would have architects who would make sure that the stones were cut in a certain way and then fit those stones precisely in the construction of the building. So the idea that we have here is that some architect was looking at a stone, trying to decide, hmm, is this a good cornerstone? Will this fit and support all that weight? And ultimately, they looked at that stone and said, eh, I don't think so, and rejected it. So this is a really important image, because as we're going to see, this is going to come back, and Jesus is going to cite this very verse in relationship to himself. Now, it's also possible that this could refer to a capstone, and that would be the stone that's in an arch, the big stone in the middle of the arch. And this would be kind of the crowning achievement of the architect who had constructed the whole building, and when everything was finished, that capstone just fits in perfectly to show that the building is sound and well-constructed. It doesn't really matter if this is referring to a cornerstone or a capstone, because either way, this stone is essential. And the point is, is that some human looked at this stone, assessed it, scrutinized it, evaluated it, and determined that it was not acceptable. It was rejected. But the Lord had another plan. In the original context of this psalm, this could actually have referred to the nation Israel. By all standards, the nation Israel was tiny. It was not a military strength. And indeed, many of the surrounding empires rejected it as unworthy. But not so in God's eyes. It was the place where he was going to lay the foundation of his work. So I just want to kind of bring us back to the the emphasis on praise in this psalm. And as I noted earlier, the psalm opens and closes with a declaration of giving thanks to God for his goodness and his enduring mercy and love. Wow, this is quite a contrast to our reading from Psalm 31, isn't it? Here, in Psalm 31, we have a a situation of extreme anguish and suffering. The suffering is both physical and emotional. The language in verses 9 and 10 is intense. Eyes, throat, belly, all consumed with sorrow, a life wasted with grief and sighing, and affliction that takes away all strength. Even the psalmist's bones are consumed. These are indications of intense grief and sorrow. This is spiritual depression. The psalmist can only cry out to the Lord to be merciful. It's probably not surprising to learn that Psalm 31 is classified as a lament psalm. This is a group of psalms that focus on grief, sorrow, and even regret. The perspective can either be from an individual or a community. Many of these psalms include gut-wrenching cries and pleas to the Lord. They express the broad spectrum of human sorrow and suffering. What may be more surprising to learn is that lament psalms comprise one-third of all psalms. This confirms what we already know. Life is hard. But these psalms encourage us to mourn loss and suffering, to sit with the pain and the sorrow. And these psalms give us the language to do just that. In these psalms, we see our own struggles, our own suffering. 
And we have the words of mourning and sorrow that were written thousands of years ago where we can join our voices with others who felt similarly. How appropriate these psalms are to our current situation. We've all been experiencing some aspect of loss and sorrow through the isolation and the pain of the pandemic. But now, currently, many of us are, are filled with sorrow over the things that are taking place in Ukraine and other parts of the world. Those are played out on a broad spectrum, broad scale, but there are also personal sorrows. So we are so thankful that the Psalms give us the language to express what's in our hearts. In Psalm 31, in verses 11 and 13, we see that even worse than the physical suffering is the emotional toll that this takes. It's unclear in this psalm if this psalm, the suffering has to do with the psalmist's own sin. This is a psalm of David, and we know that there are plenty of times in David's life where his sin caused tremendous suffering. But this is not really the focus of this psalm. So it could be a small contributing factor. But either way, we can feel his pain as he encounters the rejection of people that he loved. He hears tormenting whispers in the crowd, condemning looks from those who had been neighbors. Perhaps this is like Job, who experienced tremendous physical suffering that was not due to his sin. Yet his situation was made so much worse by the accusation of his so-called friends. These verses give us the language to use when we are wronged or even slandered by others. And yes, the Lord wants to hear about this as well. But notice that it is right in this place of pain and despair that David remembers. He remembers the Lord and his trust in him. He remembers that his life is in God's hands. The suffering is great, but the knowledge that David's times are in God's hands is greater. This knowledge leads David to plead that the Lord will rescue him and make his face shine upon his servant. The image of God's face shining is a reminder that God in his glory has not moved from his brilliant shining throne. He is still there, and David can trust in him. Now, although the readings from Psalm 118 and Psalm 31 appear to be paradoxical, a movement from praise to lament, both psalms present a reversal from distrust distrust to trust, sorry, from uh, despair to deliverance and from suffering to praise. So that leads us back to Psalm, to Psalm, Psalm, but Palm. I knew I was going to do that this morning. I actually prayed about that. So this leads us back to Palm Sunday. What a difference in S makes. Um, and the apparent tension between praise and lament, between rejoicing and suffering. And as I mentioned, I think Psalm, Sorry, now that I've started down this road, it's not going to get any better. I think that Palm Sunday is one of the ways that can help us learn how to resolve this tension. Specifically, this tension is resolved in Jesus. And what we're going to see is that ultimately both of these psalms help to point us to Jesus. He is the one and the only one who can show us how to live in this tension between praise and lament. 
Now, it's interesting that Psalm 118 was not understood as pointing to the Messiah before the time of Christ. But Jesus himself interacts quite a bit with Psalm 118. At this, as we just saw in the reading earlier, um, this is going to be part of what Jesus utters in leading up to his crucifixion. But just prior to that, in the time leading up to what we call Holy Week, in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 23, there's a, an account of the woes that are directed to the people who have rejected Jesus. And this is followed by Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. And then he proclaims to his followers that they will not see him until they can say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, right out of Psalm 118. Now here, this is really Jesus declaring that he is the one who is coming from the Lord. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord and reveals who the Lord is. Yes, there will be judgment on those who have rejected him, as the woes make clear, but there is also the hope of restoration for those who trust in Jesus. They will be blessed. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is what is shouted by the crowds as Jesus enters into Jerusalem in his final week and what we have proclaimed this morning, which is why this verse is recited on Palm Sunday. But even as we see today in our readings, this rejoicing was short-lived. And we have another citation from Psalm 118 when Jesus is interacting with uh, leaders who are rejecting him. So we have this, this is recorded in all four Gospels, but we have this recorded in the parable of the tenants uh, in the middle of the final week of Jesus' life when he is dealing with these religious leaders. And here he quotes from verse 22 out of Psalm 118, where he, where he is talking in this parable about a landowner who has leased out his, uh, his fields and is expected to have some payment come back to him. So he sends various servants to come out to collect the, the fruit, the um, harvest, and each one of those is treated horribly, if not treated shamefully. Finally, he decides that he will send his son to collect what is due. And what do the uh, tenant farmers do? They kill the son. This is where Jesus, in reciting this parable, cites the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus understood that this psalm was speaking about himself. The parable is talking about all the ways that God has sent prophets and others to his people to call them back to himself. Finally, he sends his son. What do they do? They murder his son. They crucify his son. So in a really powerful way, what Jesus is saying is just like the ancient builders could hold up a stone, scrutinize it, look at it, and then say, eh, not good enough, and throw it away. That's what the religious leaders were doing in Jesus' day. They held him up, they looked at him, they scrutinized him and said, eh, not God's work, and they rejected him. But God is showing that Jesus is the cornerstone, the one upon whom everything will be constructed. Throughout Scripture, we have multiple declarations of this, but one that is really powerful is in 1 Peter chapter 2, where we are described as living stones that are being used to construct upon the living stone the very temple of God, constructed not with bricks, not with stones, but on the foundation of Jesus and constructed with believers. 
Um, so Psalm 118 has a very important place in uh, Jesus' understanding of who he is and really our understanding of who we are. As Psalm 118 is associated with praise in our early reading, we also see that it, again, presents this paradox as well, that what is rejected by people is highly esteemed by God. The terrible rejection of Jesus by those who cried out, crucify him, crucify him, is reversed by God's loyal, steady love at the resurrection. So we can also, because of that, exclaim with the psalmist, on this day the Lord has acted, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Psalm 31 is the psalm of David, so it's not surprising to consider how it points to Christ. There are many ways in which David's life anticipates Jesus' incarnation. Here in this psalm, we see David's profound trust in God. And this anticipates Jesus' own trust in the Father during his time on earth. And in fact, Jesus quoted from Psalm 31, verse 5, uh, which is just before the section that we read of this psalm on the cross, and that was read earlier. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Echoing many other parts of this psalm, Jesus demonstrates complete trust in God even to the point of death. But that trust necessarily involves the conviction that there is life after that. Life will continue, and God is the source of that life. Clearly, Jesus' times were in the Father's hands, and Jesus faced death on the cross with the conviction and the assurance that there would be life, that there would be extreme rejoicing that would follow this horrific event. And just as a side note, Jesus is willing to suffer on our behalf is clearly outlined in our wonderful reading from Philippians 2, which really traces all that willing, Jesus was willing to do and then the tremendous praise that will follow from that. So what can we take away from these two psalms on Palm Sunday? First, we see the model of Jesus as the perfect human being also fully divine, but the perfect human being who lived in this very tension of suffering and joy, of pain and hope. We experience his incredible suffering and complete rejection, and we see his trust in God's steady love and goodness in the midst of that very suffering. For sure, we are not called to suffer the same way that Jesus did. We need to take seriously that Jesus does understand our suffering and our pain and our lament. He is not far up there. He is here with us. His incarnation shows that he really does understand what we are going through. Like Jesus, we can use the very words of lament that are found in the Psalms to cry out to God, knowing that he hears us and thanking him for giving us the very words that we need to express our pain and suffering. He knows the tension of living between suffering and trusting, between dying and rejoicing. He is here with us in this tension, and we can trust and even rejoice. Second, we are reminded once again that we need to remember. 
We need to remember the Lord's goodness and mercy. We need to collectively recite his faithfulness to us individually and to us communally, even in the midst of very hard times. He has been good to each one of us in more ways than we can understand. He has brought us into relationship with himself, and he has brought us into relationship with his precious ones. We can be fickle. Switching from Hosanna to crucify him in the space of just a few minutes. But he is unchanging in his steady love. And we need to remember that. We do live in a paradox between lament and joy, between doubt and faith, but we are not alone. We have been given very words to express these emotions, and we trust in the one who understands this tension and the one in whom this tension holds together. Praise the Lord. Where else do we find the ability to hold together suffering and rejoicing? The one who experienced rejection and praise, and he is, is, is the one to whom we turn, and he is the very foundation stone upon which everything depends. And that's not changing.